It's a bingo! In honor of Clouds of Sils Maria, what actor whose native language is not English knocked you out with an English language performance? I'm Katie Rich, and it's hard to remember after that inexplicable second Oscar, but Christoph Waltz, as referenced by Dave, really was amazing in Inglorious Bastards to the point that uh, we still make jokes about his performance. Hey, it's me, aforementioned Dave. I'm going to go with the spirit of this Sunday and say that Nicolaj Coaster Waldo as Jamie Lannister, because that dude is not an Anglo Saxon fictional knight. <laughs> I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Ingrid Bergman in Notorious because intrigue eyes transcend language. Also, I was going to go with Casa, but I've only seen it once. I'm True David life. Ehrlich. I'm David Ehrlich. Uh, I, you can't you can't call it Casa if you've seen it once or ever because that's. I'm just... sorry. I just like to quote Vin Diesel. <laughs> um, he loves I, Casa. I baby. appreciate Matt taking us back before the turn of the millennium, but. Truly in honor of Clouds and Souls, Maria, I am going to go with Juliette Binoche in certified copy, as I would do in any opportunity to do so. Excuse me, David, you left off part of your answer. I did. Oh, and Godzilla. Yes. Important. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good. Then, well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 66 for Tuesday, April 7th, 2015, remaining the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown. Before we get started, uh, I believe David has picked out some lovely iTunes reviews uh, that you guys have left for us. Well, we're just going to read the one from Greg Rice, although I should mention that we also got some uh, less enthusiastic responses uh, on our Facebook. People did not like our John Oliver <laughs> No. Uh, or, and some took uh, umbrage with my Furious reaction seven to comments. Furious 7. Uh, we, we've marveled at how different the tone is in the, the communications on Facebook versus iTunes. But we read them um, all. But we do read them all. And now we're going to read the iTunes review from Greg Rice, who says, A fun hangout with friends. Uh, and this is, a, this is a whopper of a review, so buckle your seatbelts. Oh, boy. <laughs> the third celestial host arrived on Earth 1,000 years ago to inspect progress of the human race and its crop of Hollywood and indie fare. Katie and Dave Seven challenge the Celestial's right to judge via reason discussion and Kingsmoot, respectively. Patches, named after a beloved cosmic rescue dog, sat in the corner <laughs> with a wisecrack and energy and pouring out of his eyes. Wow. But it ouch. was, all capitals, the Ehrlich, the great <laughs> Celestial host Ehrlich, who floated above the heavens, proclaiming with venom that your favorite film is garbage. <laughs> this judgment is written. Only the Winter Soldier may save us. Thank you, Greg Rice. Uh, and thank you to all who listen and respond. We'll read some, <laughs> as many as of your comments as we can get to, no matter how strange. The more they resemble the, uh, the work of L. Ron Hubbard, maybe the more likely we are to read it. Indeed. Yes, I want to see the animated version of this. Uh, I know. Review. I really want to see what your celestial dog body looks like. It's pretty much the same thing. So. <laughs> Sexed. <laughs> I don't want you monkey mouth motherfucker sitting in my throne again. I'm mad, but I ain't stressing. True friends, one question. Bitch, where you and I was walking? Now I run a game, got the whole world talking. King Kunta, everybody wanna cut the legs off him. Kunta, black man taking.
All right. When I pitched this segment to everybody over email, Dave responded, uh, is this relevant in any way? And I said, no, it's not, which is why we're definitely going to talk about it. I was just wondering. Yes. You, well, is you, there a peg? No, no peg. We will defy pegs in this segment. Um, I want to talk about Steven Spielberg's 1989 film Always, uh, which I watched not too long ago for the first time. I was anxious to to catch this film finally because it was the one Spielberg film that I was missing. I want to be a completist. I've now seen all of his films. Have you all seen all of his films? In no way, mm-hmm. no. No, really? Not which which films do you, does anything come to mind? What have you not uh, seen? 1941, uh, Shirley and Express, Color Purple, uh, oh Amistad. There's a lot, yeah. Amistad. Ooh, Gotta Amistad, hear the score. Yeah. I missed uh, 1941, but just because, I don't know, there's so much good Spielberg. It's like it's only a rare time that you see lesser or uh, bad Spielberg. And when I want to see that, I watch Hook. <laughs> yes. that's a really solid that is a very sensitive subject for people uh i constantly see people on twitter being attacked for their love of hook oh I uh, mean, different I, subject I, I love it but also if you loved this movie i think you're also in a small grouping of people maybe nobody Steven loves Spielberg this movie and though. richard Dreyfus there's there's not enough them. kitsch to always to love always i think there are, and all that badges lead the way but i think there, there are lots of things to enjoy about it but i think it's real enduring value uh, is how it contextual its context in Spielberg's filmography as a whole. Well, that's definitely um, what I want to hint here because when I watch it, I, I think I enjoy Always. Um, it's a very romantic. Not the second half. You couldn't enjoy what, the second. What half. year did Always come out? What, what put it put it into context here? Nineteen eighty nine. Okay, so after it is based, it is based. It's a remake of a nineteen forty three romantic drama called A Guy Named Joe. Uh, which was, uh, he, you know, this was not a like scene by scene remake. Uh, that was a World War II film. This is, well, this he's putting out forest fires it, in it all takes, it, it commits a cardinal sin by taking uh, of screenwriting, which is taking a situation and and completely defenestrating its stakes. It's like, what are we going to do with this, this story of daring? Pilots, yeah, but okay. <laughs> in World War II, it's like oh, we'll put them uh, to fight. You know, nature's greatest foe, fire. In, hey, uh, in Colorado, fire is fucking scary. Fire is scary. This is the so, Smokey the Bear era. I can see the argument. Yes, exactly. This was the pressing issue for people. Put out these fires. Um, mix dirt and water into your campfire. You don't want always to happen again. Uh, what happens in this movie? Richard Dreyfus plays Pete, who is this hotshot pilot who puts out forest fires with his buddy Al, played by John Goodman. He's in love with Dorinda. What a great name. Holly Hunter. And um, very early on in the film, he dies in, a, in this. He actually saves John Goodman's life in a really cool scene where he puts out a fire on top of John Goodman's plane, kind of sacrifices his own plane in the process. And then his plane blows up and he dies. Uh, and in the afterlife, he meets Audrey Hepburn, uh, <laughs> <Hap>. <laughs> or Hap. Hap, yes, Hap. Who there's a very tragic story about Audrey Hepburn. She had this. Uh, this was her last film, and Audrey Hepburn was was dying of cancer at this point. No, she she had a very rare. Yes, she was. She was no, dying. She died she of cancer very, four years later, and she was only sick for. She about had a month. the. 
No, she's she only had, sick for two months before she died. Right, this is a crazy thing to debate, but she, I mean, she she had the cancer for some time. It was it was not like a lump in her body; it was like lining her colon. Anyway, no, it it, it was a. Uh, you're wrong. It, it was a I'm cancer that coated her. It did coat her colon, but she they discovered it in September of the year before she died, and she died in January. Well, you didn't know okay, so much about Audrey Hepburn's colon. Well, I just watched always and spent all weekend reading her fucking Wikipedia. <laughs> the point thing. is, the point is, Audrey Hepburn's her last film, and uh, when Richard Dreyfuss dies. He goes to the afterlife and sees her and gets a shave, first off. And then he's basically returned to Earth. He's invisible. Uh, he's kind of It's kind of like Quantum Leap. But he's going to help this young hotshot pilot become a great pilot. He's going to kind of whisper. Apparently, dead people whisper in your ear and um, tell you to do yeah, things. How can you say it's That's like cool. Quantum Leap and not like ghosts? Yeah. Oh, okay. Solid true. Point. It's a little more like ghosts. <laughs> um, there's so many weird things going on in this film, and it's extremely rambling. What I like about the movie is that it is deeply romantic and sentimental. Um, you know, the things that people criticize Spielberg for this this sacred element to some of his films. I mean, he just goes full force here. He just wants to be a romantic, and maybe that's the problem with always that he is he's a master of many things and romance may not be one of them um for all his sentimentality uh david would you agree with that that there are there are limitations here to what spielberg can do and i find it fascinating for that reason because obviously you know put put spielberg's camera in the air and do all these aerial stunts and that stuff is thrilling and he's lucky with this cast richard dreyfus is great and even more so holly hunter is the gift that keeps on giving she's an incredible actress she's so sweet and tender and also full of force uh there's a great scene early on when uh you know holly hunter's brassy and she's yelling at the guys in the planes and like land your planes i'm an angry woman and then she comes into the bar and um gets mad at richard dreyfus for treating her kind of like a tomboy or something but then richard dreyfus buys her Girl clothes. She's like, girl clothes. It gives way to one of the so, weirdest things I've ever seen. In a and then movie, all the men in the local all the Yeah, it's so bizarre. <laughs> yes. All the men, all the firefighters, the aerial firefighters take their turns. Like, Share they, your whip in the... It, it would be, if in a movie released today, would be seen as, for lack of a better word, rapey. <laughs> and uh, oh, I think... It's really sweet. No, I mean, I the intentions are clearly sweet, but they're the aggressiveness of the men and like hounding her it's very uh maybe very uncomfortable but uh i think what patches said is is right on um i think this unfortunately is a case well, of two things one this is a, a man a guy called joe is allegedly one of the movies that inspired spielberg to become a filmmaker in the first place and i can completely see that because it, of uh how it travels and, and traffics and uh the kind of sentiment to which spielberg is often derided um and it really feels like the kind of movie that they made because they could. Uh, he had reached that point in his career. And, uh, you know, kudos for them. We don't really see mid-range dramas like this anymore, uh, particularly ones that are uh, opening wide on their first weekend and somehow, without really changing the theater counts, make more money the next weekend. That's a phenomenon we don't see anymore. Um, did that happen but with Always? It did. Uh, but so it wasn't a flop. I mean, it didn't. I didn't say how much money it made yeah. <laughs> those weekends. Well, uh, I mean, it was a flop. flop. It yeah. made seventy-four million. It made it. No, it, it yeah. Back then, it was fine. It's but um, it is. It's a case of there never being a great movie made from a bad script. Uh, the always does not have a, anything to lean on. Uh, the central romance is horribly underwritten um, and defined by. Some some pretty trite anxieties. Uh, it hinges on a kind of mawkishness that 
may have worked in a different mode back with uh, a Victor Fleming film, um, but it doesn't here. Uh, and it actually sort of clashes with how excellent and, and breathlessly suspenseful the uh, firefighting sequences are. And the practical, I mean, especially in this day and age, um, it, it's really hard not to be impressed by the practical aerial work. The scene, as Patches mentioned, where uh, Richard Dreyfus, before he explodes, when he drops water, on John Goodman's plane is really exciting. Um, and the fire over later in the film becomes a broad metaphor for hell, uh, you know, contrast against Audrey Hepburn's uh, angelic presence. Um, but the movie, the second half of this movie is just a nightmare. It's, it's so a, clunky. It's, it's bizarre yeah. how, like, inconsequential his time spent on Earth helping this guy, Ted, become a great pilot. Like, to give you an idea in a really kind of reductive way, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page of this film just to kind of scan the summary to make sure I don't miss anything, and I'd say only the last quarter of its summary is the last half of the entire movie. It takes that much to get to where he dies, and then the rest of the film. Like, it's insane how little really happens. And the tender moments are drowned in this kind of, like, What's happening? They're they're trying yeah, to learn how he, to him whispering fly. in people's ears just does not make for strong cinema. He's like inserting against their will this voice right. into their brains. It would have uh, been a great, he, amazing story from Spielberg's <laughs> television show. Uh, unfortunately, it's it's not a great movie. And Spielberg has a penchant for casting people who never come back and do great things again. Like Brad Johnson plays the young hotshot pilot who Dreyfus is going to help, and he he's been acting steadily since then. But like. I don't know. I, I, I'm reminded of that kid from War of the Worlds. What's his name? Justin Chadwick or whatever. Justin Chadwick. No, just, uh, yeah. People, yeah, people who regularly act but like never in something <laughs> worth Spielberg's time. Uh, never like get. Rufio. Well, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's funny because it was nice speaking of the casting. You know, Holly Hunter is really doing – reprising the same character that she did so wonderfully in Broadcast News. Um, and so while her performance is sort of a force here, it's not very exciting. I think it's more exciting to see Richard Dreyfuss reteam with – Spielberg again um, and then I watched always just by chance uh, earlier this weekend and I watched Mr. Holland's Opus was on TV before Mad Men last night oh yeah um, and uh, that is one of those movies that I will that is my jam yeah I cannot, I cannot turn off uh, against my my best interest but uh Beautiful. And it's Beautiful. just, it's, Beautiful. yes, that movie has its own, that movie has its own uh, sentimentality for sure. But uh, it, it, it was not great timing for always because I very quickly forgot about um, everything he brought to that movie. Really, the only thing that stands out is, uh, you know what also stands out to me? And the last thing I'll say about the movie is that while the movie eventually feels like Spielbergian self-parody, the first 40 minutes or so, particularly other than the weirdness of that scene in the, where they're all dancing, um, even the first 10 minutes, the community around the aerial firefighting world, uh, it, it has a rare vividness to it. It feels alive and like it exists outside of the camera. And it reminded me a lot of uh, Robert Altman's films from around that time mm. um, or really the decade before. Uh, vibe here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the setting that way for sure. Um, Nashville, the way it's not nearly as fluid as Nashville, but uh, it felt like an homage to Altman that slowly, uh, you know, rots into Spielberg self parody. Yikes. So always I rented it in beautiful high definition on iTunes, and I would highly recommend it if only to see Spielberg kind of whiff 
uh, we, we, we put him on such a pedestal. I think it's important to watch the movies that don't necessarily work because there's a lot going on. He gets a lot right in all ways, but he's not always perfect. This Banger. would be a, a fun mini series that we have going on that we just do Spielberg flops. There aren't too many more. I know, but I've never seen 1941. So and you'll never make me watch Kingdom of the Crystal Skull again, no matter what David says. Oh, God, that's true. <laughs> we'll just let David monologue on that one. Yeah, I don't think he needs us to watch it. Here, on the wall, we are all one house. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. Now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I pledge my life and honor for this night and all the nights to come. Now my watch begins. For this night and all the nights to come. Now my watch begins. The night's watch is the only thing. So last week, uh, we we talked in our mini segment a little about Mad Men, things that we wanted to see in that kind of final. Uh, set of episodes, which if you watched it last week, uh, I don't know if anyone's wishes came true in the first episode. Anyone? I didn't expect them to come true in the first episode. That would have been, yeah, too easy. I wanted all of my wishes to come true in the first episode so I didn't well, have to watch any more. Whatever seen me a lot of time. The Avery was not chewed apart by wolves, which I found personally <laughs> disappointing. Uh, but uh, Rachel Mankin came back, which is not a not something that I voiced on the air, but it's something that I was hoping that happened. That was happen. a pleasant surprise. Unfor- well, it was a pleasant surprise that a pleasant horror uh, when, when we found out that Rachel died. I don't know. Are we getting into spoilers here? No, Sorry. She's, she's, she's Sorry I ever lived the life that she aired. wanted to live. She did. Fair. Fair. Uh, yeah, she got a pretty solid shiva. So yeah. for this week's mini segment, I'm going to ask you guys the same question about Game of Thrones. It's not the final season, but Game of Thrones has so much plot. There's so much to... Uh, desire out of this show and so much, uh, so little that you'll actually get by the time this uh, fifth season? Dave, uh, fifth season five? Sure, yes. Yes. I think so. I believe it. Is. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's definitely season five because George R. R. Martin is not going to write any episodes from season six because he's trying season, to finish his book. Uh, I think it's season four. I don't you can, know. You can check it, but I'm pretty sure it's season five. The internet has Wait, it. wait. Matt, uh, Game of Thrones? It's yeah. absolutely season five. Woo! Damn. College. <laughs> Um, all right. So, yes, the question is, what do you want to see happen on season five of Game of Thrones based on everything a tremendous amount that happened on season four? Dave, I'm going to start with you because you have a podcast that goes on this feed that's about spoilers in Game of Thrones. Yeah. What's it called? I, I, it's called Storm of Spoilers, and it's with some people who have read the books. I have not, so I'm going to go with what I genuinely want to see happen, which is A, Daenerys needs to start making some moves towards actually getting to, to Westeros. I think that that would be nice. Um, she's been What's fussing around, her? breaking breaking chains. She, well, she you know she feels like she has a responsibility to freeing these people, which I guess is good. She's building a bigger and bigger army. Yeah, and you know she wants people to look at her as like a queen and not just this baby that's coming back to reclaim her throne. And I guess you that, know, this is why you zerg rush, right? This is zerg rush people <laughs> go straight into the throne anyway. And then the other thing is, I want. Um, Jon Snow to sort of uh, find what he's looking for now. Step the fuck up? Yeah, I guess, you know, now that, you know, he's been trained as the Night Watch guy and been north of the wall and had to, you know, see his love die, but he wasn't allowed to be with her anyway. It's time to rejoin the rest of the characters who care about this this uh, place and um, 
maybe face down the supernatural threat that's coming your way. Jon Snow, man up. Be more like you are in the Telltale game where you're awesome and a source of my character's trust. <laughs> I know what I'm looking forward to. Yes, David. I'm looking forward to it so hard. It's uh, when the show finally outpaces the books and all those people who have had been holding on to this. Like it's their the only thing they have in their world is uh, we'll finally we'll finally I don't even know where my spite is coming. Who were yeah? Who were you against in this? <laughs> I, I people who were like you know that the, the whole culture of <laughs> this of is David's personal readers. Game of no, uh, no, you people know, who read he wants books. the red wedding. Of, of I, I've I've been frustrated by uh, the idea that there's been this sort of. Um, People are upset when the show diverges from the books, and they, like it's a holy text. I think and, they often aren't. Actually, I've been well good. I hope by so. Game of Thrones readers being pretty blasé in a it, way that like Harry Potter fans never were. Right. In truth, my my excitement for this is not motivated out of spite so much as it is us all discovering something new together, and that in seeing uh, in retrospect once uh, the show is over, the choices that they made as storytellers, how they diverged from. The, the books, etc. That's what I'm excited about. From for. what I understand, the season diverges from the books significantly. I haven't read the books, but I work with a book reader and have learned a lot. Thanks, Joanna. There. And so, Katie, what do you want? Um, I So, I think two of the most exciting moments for me in the last while of Game of Thrones is at the end of last season when uh, Stannis Baratheon arrives uh, I guess immediately north of the wall in this big scene with Jon Snow and Mance Raider and you get this one world colliding and then in the season 5 poster where you see Tyrion on the bow of a ship with a dragon hovering in the distance I love these worlds meeting up like uh, Dave was saying about da- Daenerys hurrying up and getting to Westeros like I care less about that about kind of forward movement and more just about these people meeting up and every time you get people from various you know, it almost feels like they're in separate universes and when they interact it's just so satisfying because this cast is so enjoyable these characters are so fun all of these plots work really well on their own, and then when they meet up, it's just it's a huge thrill. So I'm hoping this season has a lot of that. You're such a Marvel fan at heart. Yeah, I really just universe. want shared universes and then a Sansa <laughs> spinoff. <laughs> oh my god, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, um, it really could happen. What do I really want? I really just want more magic. I'm a real nerd about this. I'm like Melisandre. Sometimes you just want it to be the Green Lantern. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. No, I want it. I want it to be a little goofier. I'm gonna miss not having Bran because Bran is completely cut out of this season. I believe we're, we're not gonna that's know. The, that's the rumor. Yeah. What's going on? I, yeah, that's what people keep saying that he wasn't in the cast list or he's. They didn't shoot anything of his. So White Walker nonsense. What? Well, what? Did we see? He uh, White Walker's like killed all his friends and then he went under a tree and that was the last time we saw it or something. And, yeah. All that absurdity, I'm going to miss, yeah, not having that. And I'm also want to know, like, what, what was it two seasons ago when there was a, like, a black cloud of smoke uh, that was attacking people or more I was lost. That was, right, hey, what am I thinking of? Um, yeah, Alessandra gave birth to a smoke baby that killed uh, Renly. Yep. Of course, of course. I want that to come back and just hang out. I just wanted to meet up with people, like uh, Katie is saying. Um, I mean, she's she's hanging with Jon Snow right now, so, uh, you know. I'm looking at my my time hop right now from a year ago today when I was watching Game of Thrones and said, in honor of Game of Thrones, I'm hereby referring to the sandwich I'm making as the bread wedding. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> what I'm looking forward to this season is more Game of Thrones puns from David. 
The bread wedding. Good one, David. <laughs> <laughs> Stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job So the other night, I watched a fantastic film It's actually not, it's not really that good But Katie probably will Good setup It's called called 9 to 5 Nine to five, Katie. I like. Nine, I wouldn't say it's a fantastic film, but I like nine to five. I feel like it's revered for some reason. I mean, it's, I feel like I'd put it next to like Trading Places. Like, does that seem like a decent? Comparison? I guess is nine to five is Dolly Parton movie. Oh yeah, yes. it is. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no. it's basically a sitcom starring Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly. Parton. And who wouldn't want to watch that? It's pretty. I mean, it can be very fun. It gets very, very silly when it spirals out of control, and they accidentally they think they've poisoned their boss, who they hate, who's a total misogynist. It could probably just be about office politics. It could be like a sillier working girl or something like that, and just about being being a woman working in an office. Uh, Anyway, nine to five was kind of my launching point for talking about Mad Men of all things, Um, because a few weeks ago, Museum of Moving Image here in New York. Um, published a list of 10 films that Matthew Weiner says influenced Mad Men. Um, and has been do- they've been screening them throughout, and David wrote about them, and I wrote a little bit about them, and um, they've been capturing people's attention because it's kind of, you know, opening up about Mad Men in this final final section of episodes is a big deal. And, and Matthew Weiner kind of acknowledging the movies that influenced him, um, you know, it captures our imaginations in a way, but uh, 9 to 5 was not on this list. And I really think it should be. Uh, how can you, how can you make a movie about, uh, women in the workplace, modern women in the workplace? And by modern, I guess I mean second half of the century, uh, 20th century and, and not kind of put nine to five in there and not cite it as an influence. I thought it was a little shocking after rewatching nine to five, you see it there, but then again, it's pretty obvious and broad. Um, and, Maybe the politics of Mad Men are too. So my conversation here is really one. I wanted to acknowledge these ten films that Matthew Weiner put out there and see if you guys had any thoughts. If you see the the if you could trace a line from Mad Men to these films or or vice versa, and then see if there were any other films like Nine to Five uh, that you might cite as as potential influences or that you see in Mad Men or companion viewing for people uh, as they watch this show or as they leave it behind. Uh, Um, David. Well, I, 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 it's probably not helpful to do it in reverse, but just talking about 9 to 5 is the entree to the section. Um, overwhelmingly, the film that I feel most inspired Mad Men that Matthew Weiner did not choose, yeah. uh, and I feel this way it's even more strong than I did uh, after watching the season premiere, uh, or whatever you want to call the episode that aired last night. Just call night. the season premiere. For yeah, game, is uh, Eyes Wide Shut, which oh, I think is all over Mad Men. Um, He's a very big Kubrick fan. Back. But uh, having said that, I don't know if you guys want to take this chance to, to voice the movies looking at the list that, that he did not include. But well, maybe, why, why, would you, we should... why would you put Eyes Wide Shut there? Well, let's, let's be free for him here. And I, I, I'm interested in, the, in that reference. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I uh, can <laughs> articulate it so well. But I think not, it's not it's just a feeling an, deep down. I, well, it is. I mean, in part because, you know, Eyes Wide Shut and Mad Men are both. Uh, explicitly about New York, and they are both shot on uh, transparently artificial sound stages. Mad Men more than 
Eyes Wide Shut, but Eyes Wide Shut, you know, with those famous behind-the-scenes shots of Tom Cruise walking on a treadmill across fake storefronts in the on the London sets. Um, they are, they're a very hermetic world that is essential to the movie's feel um, and how they sort of uh, – these worlds uh, are ex- extensions of these male main characters who uh, occupy them and uh, in, in that way – Especially when, it, of course, when, when Mad Men dips its toe into uh, sexual politics. The opening of yesterday's episode when he's uh, talking to that woman who it turns out to be so in that ad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, – I, I thought immediately of Eyes Wide Shut. Um, and I think that uh, Matthew Weiner was restricting his choices to movies that were period appropriate. But um, Well, that's, he chose Blue Velvet. With, oh, okay. But I, I – well, Blue really Velvet lovely. is so uh, tied to – those first few seasons of Mad Men. I mean, it may be set whenever it's set. I mean, obviously made in 1984. Yeah, uh, but um, but it is, you know, explicitly commenting on 50s Americana. So I think that I can see that connection pretty easily. I think Eyes Wide Shut would have been a little bit more uh, outside the box. But nevertheless, uh, at least aesthetically, I think um, is something that I've noticed from the from the beginning. Well, that's what I was curious. Like the apartment and North by Northwest are on Weiner's lists, and I'm curious how you guys would would click those together with Mad Men, or how they reckon with that with the show, or vice versa. And and I'm, I mean, the apartment maybe it's a period thing. You know, I think a lot of Weiner's choices end up being about you know production design more than what the values of the film but then again maybe the apartment is something deeper in what the apartment has a really interesting attitude toward you know affairs and who is sleeping with who and who is stepping outside of their marriage and kind of acknowledging it as a given fact which i don't know exactly how uh revolutionary that would have been in 1960 but it definitely feels like it influences the world of mad men where you kind of step into it and you don't know until the end of the premiere that don is even married and the way that affairs are just kind of part of what office life is like. And also you think, I mean, especially in the pilot when they had filmed in New York, the way that the office is set up with just rows and rows of typewriters. I mean, that's the predominating visual image in, uh, in the apartment for sure. I guess the apartment, <clears throat> the, the, the fun thing about the movie is that these slovenly men can have their, their affairs are funny and they are depressing as hell. And that's the, amazing thing about Mad Men. Like, I'm laughing at how obnoxious the men of this show are, but then it's just deeply sad. Yeah, I think about Roger and Joan, who's a couple that people really rooted for for a long time until I think it became clear how damaging it was for her, especially to continue to be in this relationship with somebody who wasn't committing to her, even though they seem to really like each other and get along. And, you know, you can kind of see that in the Shirley MacLaine, Fred McMurray dynamic and then how terribly that goes for her. What about the two Hitchcock films on this list, Vertigo and North by Northwest? I feel like – is that all – Well, North by Northwest, as as Weiner says in the notes that he wrote for Momi's program, are uh, – is really tied to the pilot of the episode and really the central premise of uh, somebody who is sort of an ad man looking to reinvent themselves and have a, a mistaken identity of sorts, even if it's a, a, a one that Don Draper is uh, you know, taking steps to assume – for himself, uh, and, and I think that there is that quality to it that it was really probably motivating him when he was putting together the show in its its uh, bare bones.
Jones idea. What was the other Hitchcock film on it? Uh, Vertigo. 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 Yeah. Vertigo. Yeah. Vertigo is everywhere. Sense. Yeah, Vertigo is everywhere. Yeah. Well, well, what do you mean by Vertigo is everywhere? Well, like, like from the framing of the shots to the actual style of the thing to how Don Draper obsesses about his relationship to women, Vertigo was all over Mad Men. To much and more than North he... by Northwest is. I think last night's episode or the Sunday's episode really highlighted the way that he returns to the same kinds of women, like the waitress who's played mm-hmm. by Elizabeth Reeser. He thinks he recognizes her. I thought I recognized her for a minute. I couldn't figure. I thought she must have been on there at some point. But I she looked she so much. Woman, I thought that she was the woman he met on uh, the train after he came home with Don, uh, Don Draper's body. And oh, was like, like you know, be, I mean, she's not. I know yeah. she's not. But like I my first thought when said he recognized her. Was that that's who she was? Um, but I think that's an, a neat trick that uh, Don Draper's confusion is um, transferred onto the audience. Yeah, and that is basically the entirety of Vertigo. If for some reason you haven't seen it yet, so yes, what? I mean, in the best possible way. <laughs> you see Vertigo, but yeah, it. it's re- it's really good. It's Mad Men encapsulated with a little bit of madness, which I don't know if we're getting yet necessarily. But. Yeah, and, and the way that Mad Men links up to Vertigo kind of highlights the things that I don't love about Mad Men. Like I'm a that's little, I'm a little worn out on Don Draper's obsessions, especially the hidden identity stuff, and that's more about the North by Northwest connection. But but isn't it supposed to be frustrating and dizzying? I mean, that's what I love about especially these new sets of episodes um, and that connection to Vertigo. I mean, we feel. The filmmaking, it's very visceral despite being kind of slow moving and dizzying and and secular. I don't know. I mean, I don't mind. I'm not talking about the filmmaking so much as just the plot and the way that we've watched this character kind of hit the same beats over and over again. And Don Draper, for all the ways that we see the 60s changing, for all the way that he seems to go through, you know, cycles. And in some way, yes, he's just kind of on a a circular path to the bottom. But I'm... I was. I think I said this at the end of last season, and I feel it now that I'm a little sick of Don, Dra- Don Draper and his shtick. Oh, well, nobody's as sick of it as Don Draper. I assure you. <laughs> so. Maybe. I don't know if Matthew Weiner is sick of it. That's what worries me. Really? I mean, I. I I do not share what you see is. <coughs> I know we had this argument at the end yeah, of last oh, we season did? Okay. when I was totally sick of him, and you <laughs> are arguing about how great it was. So anyway, that's a. That's where the Hitchcock connections kind of worry me. Like, if this is just going to go down the vertigo path and just be all about him obsessing over... Well, we all know that the series finale of Mad Men will end with Don Draper uh, handing, uh, holding Peggy's arm as she dangles outside of their Madison Avenue win- office window. Which is somehow um, shaped like Mount Rushmore. <laughs> right. Yes. And, and he will uh, fail to pull <laughs> her up. And that will be like the opening credits of the show. Oh, my God. I'm pretty sure he's going to become a D.B. Cooper and hijack a plane. Oh, uh, yeah. That Which will then run over Cary Grant a cornfield. <laughs> all, all of these all of these predictions are very much in line with the show that Mad Men has been. Very it's accurate. like I see all the, the recap headlines that are on the variety and whatnot, and they're like, Mad Men begins its last stretch of episodes with a contemplative look. At, and it's like like it's a Mad Men episode. Like yeah. It's every, <laughs> literally every episode of the this show. This episode was so weird and dreamy and thoughtful. <laughs> Like what? What do you expect? Oh, Fast Furious Seven? Like it's- well, actually, they're coming off those films, so give them some credit. Have, have thought- any of you? Uh, have any of you seen the Americanization of Emily? Which yeah, I, I watched it last week for uh, for this. A lot of fun. Totally yeah. different than some of these other, you know, more serious films, mood filled films. Vertigo. You know, if if that's intertwining with the thematic DNA of Mad Men, Americanization of Emily is. The Don Draper story in Edge of Tomorrow. That's what I kept thinking of. Tom Cruise at uh-huh. Edge of Tomorrow. But it's James Garner doing 
the edge of tomorrow. What do you think of that film, David? I thought you described it very well. I think uh, it is a lot of fun. It's not um, – there's something about that title that had always made me think that it was this like sterile – Bureaucratic draw. I mean, there is a, a heavy element of bureaucracy to it. Yeah. But, um, it's pretty that, much what it's about. Yeah, but America, it's, it's, it's very, it's in. very alive. It's very uh, light on its feet and clever, um, and it's a lot of fun. It reminds me a lot of the Roger Sterling character um, more than mm. anything else. Uh, well, James Garner is very suave. Well, it's it's interesting that you compare. You're comparing Garner to Sterling. No, I just really just like the whole the tone of the movie <laughs> more than anything else. I can imagine Roger Sterling trying to get out of D Day, talking his way out of D Day mm-hmm. in similar fashion to this. Um, this is the this is one of two Chayefsky films on Matthew Weiner's list. Have you seen the other one, David? I know it was on. You did a little write up, I believe. Which which, um, which uh, can you remind me? It's. Uh, was it Patterns? Bachelor Party. Or The Bachelor Party? No, I haven't seen The Bachelor which Party. Which was written for television. I, which I, I, there was, I wrote about seven of the ten films, and uh, alas, I left that one off because I haven't seen it. But I did write about uh, Claude Chabrol's Les Bonnes Femmes. Uh, yes, which is on Amazon. I got to watch that on Amazon. Yeah, it's, uh, which is not, you know a lot of fun is probably giving you the wrong impression about the movie. But I think uh, the word that I used in my description is carousing. There's, there's something about the... Uh, the women in, the, in this French film and that, the atmosphere between them that's very – it's like tinged with the melancholy of, of the nature of their sort of escapism and how they fit into the society as a whole um, and just the, the particular kind of energy that exists between them uh, took me right back to all of those scenes, uh, whether between the men going out in the pilot of Mad Men to the strip club or whatever, the peep show, whatever you want to call it, um, or really any time there's a party-like atmosphere in a Mad Men episode um, – it, it things get new fan. wavy. Yeah, it took me straight back there. Um, it's so and there funny. are a lot of party shots. There are a lot of yeah. party, lot of party scenes in the first uh, two seasons, particular. Although these last stretch of episodes seem to be getting more blue velvety, or or maybe it's mm-hmm. better to say they're Twin Peaksy because that's what Weiner keeps saying in interviews, as opposed to his film reference in this list. Well, um, yeah, because the blue velvet thing, as we were talking before the show, really, uh, I think speaks to the Americana that the show. Uh, perverts in its first season, uh, especially when Don is still married to Betty. Um, I think, you know, well, there are definitely elements of Twin Peaks that were evident uh, in recent episodes and the one last night. Uh, but yeah, I'd say that we've moved on from Blue Velvet to Twin Peaks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and just to kind of wrap up this list, I, I think it's funny that Weiner, a lot of Weiner's blurbs, if you go on the Museum of Moving Image website, you can read his exact descriptions for why he chose these films. And a lot of it starts with like, I saw this in film school and it changed my life. And I just think it's funny that Mad Men is basically the snowballing effect from his film school days. And I'd be frightened by what a television show based on my film school intake would be like it would be a lot of uh it'd basically be like uh a more (laughs) a television server television show version of a more probably i was watching a lot of henneke um okay so to round this out i asked you guys if there were anything any like tangential films that weren't on this list they might recommend that you kind of see in mad men or you could see you would not be surprised to hear were influential in the development of mad men uh anyone have anything i mean it's (laughs) obvious but 2001 merits reference especially given the end of last season it was discussed a lot if you were watching it with 
everyone else you'd heard people talking about 2001. But if you happen to be watching season six without other people, uh, check out 2001 to make sure you kind of get the vibe of paranoia that's going on as they well, approach the moon landing. That's what I'd want to challenge there. Like, do you see 2001? I mean, there are direct references, direct references to it in the last season. But I'm curious if you feel like whatever's going on in that film on a, on a broader sense uh, is happening in Mad Men. And I mean, I think it's a lot. I mean, it's about a really specific part of 2001, like the kind of mounting dread and paranoia that emerges when they're on the ship in that, you know, whatever section you, of the film you want to call that. Um, I mean, and it gets really explicit with Ginsburg's and the computer, but it's also, you know, part of another Don Downward spiral that leads to him getting fired at the end of the season and kind of, uh, you know, you don't know that it's leading up to the moon landing until that episode comes, but it kind of all fits together when you get there this sense of like mounting technology that nobody understands leading into this weird future that could have ended really disastrously and then we see in the end of the season that Peggy Nielsen Burger Chef pitch in they survive the moon landing and it all kind of works out better which is not very 2001 Peggy unless, will become star child yeah I was about to say it's not very 2001 depending on how you read the ending of 2001 frozen. maybe maybe it ends very well right. um Dave or David Anything come to mind? A- any other movies? Any other movies that have ever been made that have possibly influenced <laughs> <been> them? <laughs> I mean, visually, it's interesting to see it. I mean, it's it's hard for me having not you know lived through this time period to uh, separate movies that were like shot in the late sixties and released in the early seventies against just like mid sixties movies, just because like Mm. production design is all sort of weird. So like it's, it's odd for me, but I pick up, uh, in a lot of exteriors, not so much this season that we've seen, but the last season, uh, and then a lot of times when we were in California, just like light James Bond, like the idea that Mm. that is in the public consciousness for men and it's sort of manifesting, through the show, um, even though it's not directly like we're not seeing like crazy Doctor No, you know, evil person set design, uh, the the feel of it's there. The like candy coated striping over the what we're supposed to see is glamorous uh, was really there for me. I, I keep wondering about great movies set in the workplace, if there are movies that come to mind. That was going to be my question, because I feel like Weiner's List especially, I didn't really have a lot of movies that are about the greatness of work. And I don't, I mean, I might have. Right. And I was actually trying to think if I can make an argument for Playtime, which I hmm. don't really think, it, I don't think Mad Men is as visual as I'd like to think it is in terms of that, that Playtime aesthetic. But that is about kind of the busyness and the hubbub of work and a lot of other things. But maybe even like Ocean's Eleven, like there are episodes of Mad Men where they're bringing the team together, like the one where they all fire themselves and start a new company, like that kind of thrill of being part of a team. Uh, I think there are better examples than Ocean's Eleven, but that was kind of the first one I thought of. I think a lot about, about I was going to say All the President's Men. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All the President's, yeah, All the President's Men, too. But that was so like two people. And like a like a linear we're plot. In the, yeah, but it's like a, we're gonna get this and then that and then that. And Mad Men works so non-linearly. Maybe similar to Claude Chabrol or along those lines. I see a lot of Jacques Demy mm. um, and his musical films in particular, like uh, the Young Girls of Rochefort and uh, the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, uh, especially in the Robert Morse's final scene. Sure. And, uh, yeah, yeah. the end of season 7.1. Well, a lot of the way that music uh, seem to work against and, or, or in echo the footage. Right, but 
less even even not in those very literal touchstones i think i see it in, in sometimes a lot, i don't know why but joan's character how she moves how she dresses um i think maybe maybe just any one time there's a feminine energy on the show it seems to channel that a little bit um well, with umbrellas there's also that mother factor that could sure. just the way that joan is a mother and again not not literal translation there but just about the dynamic being a single mother and being alone and trying to be romantic too i find that challenge to be really interesting um I'm surprised you're not bringing up. Uh, I thought you'd have a few Douglas Cirque films to recommend, David. I don't know. Oh yeah, I don't know. I think. <laughs> I mean, again, okay. the first seasons feel really far away, even though I just rewatched the whole show. Um, rewatched the whole show. Not like in the last 24 hours, but I know, uh, like but in the in the last, yeah. I mean, I think Mad Men. I, I can only speak for myself, uh, but. I it, it really I mean I loved it the first time through but it really opened up to me the second time I watched it it felt like seeing it for the first time I think it's novelistic in a way that uh, no other show at least no other show on TV since uh, the Sopranos is, is I think it uh, it's one of the reasons why I think it humbles everything else in television and and really um, not to make it into a competition but I, it's not even close uh, but um, I do think that. Uh, it, it was really like seeing it for the first time. I don't know uh, how to say it more than that. Uh, the Douglas Stark stuff, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's probably there. I'm sure you could draw connections to all this stuff. I think Mad Men is to a certain extent, um, especially because of you know it, its premise and Don Draper's nature. Uh, it benefits from being a pastiche. Um, it, it needs to sort of lean on the most iconic elements of all of these different ingredients in order to become what it what it is uh so i i there are very few references to which i would say like no that is not in there <laughs> everything is at mad men mad men is life um just just to wrap up i mean very very few uh you know within reason well i mean I'm, like i'm just looking at a star wars i'm just looking at a list of movies released from 1960 to 1969 and you could sort of like cherry pick like the look of Mad Men out of a whole bunch of these there's sort of mm. like a general feel but like atmospheric wise um yeah i don't know well, that's why I, well, I i brought up cirque if only because of how much those movies operate with just the the bright colors and and the melodrama of it all like a successful melodrama seems very difficult, especially in this day and age. And that, I guess, transplanting it to the '60s makes it a little easier for Mad Men. But it's still a tough. It's still a tough, as you say, atmosphere to kind of execute and uh, create emotional drama within. So it's it's. I think all of Douglas's movies that I've seen seem to be able to do that and time period has nothing to do with it it's not aided by that exactly or to do it to just do it believably and to also let it be small without having some sort of larger hook on it which is the modern way of dealing with that sort of drama the one the one thing i wanted to bring up uh i I wanted to know if any of you had seen this 1956 film the man in the gray flannel suit have you seen this? I've too? seen the horse in the gray flannel suit, which is oh. a movie. It's a Disney movie about is that a star Mr. Ed. Oh <laughs> no, actually, I, let, let me look up the Wikipedia summary while you talk about the actual. Yeah, movie. so the man in the gray flannel suit stars Gregory Peck, 
Uh, this you know it takes place in the fifties, um, so it's not exactly applicable to Mad Men, but it's very much about the mundanity of um, office life. Coming back from war, there are many. I mean, this movie is two and a half hours long. There are many flashbacks to Gregory Peck's time in the war and him getting adjusted and uh, you know making his marriage work. His kids are addicted to television. He goes to the office, and it's just mundane stuff happening. Um, and and I, I can't help but note that his the actress who plays his wife Jennifer Jones plays Betsy and I'm just like I'm just seeing all the connections to Mad Men so I would I would highly recommend people see The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit um, which is a sprawling film and not entirely successful perhaps but it seems to share a lot of DNA <coughs> with Mad Men despite being taking place a decade before the events of the show I, I would be shocked if Weiner didn't bring that up at some point or if someone didn't make that observa- observation in the many years we've been talking about Mad Men yeah. uh, The Horse or, in the Gray Flannel Suit on the yes. other hand a 1968 light comedy family film directed by Norman Tokar about an advertising man who uh, gets his daughter a horse and names the horse after the aspirin he's supposed to be advertising as a way to get both of the things that he wants. Horse doesn't talk. I don't know why. I guess I got it confused with Mr. Ed. I remember uh, almost nothing about this movie except the title. Well, it has a lot lived. in common with Mad Men. It has it, to do with I, advertising. And, and thinking, horse, about, thinking about and 60s and horses, now I want Mad Men to end with a dance marathon like they shoot horses, don't they? Just like that's that, the finale episode. Right? Yeah, just, they're happen? all going to dance it off. Yeah, and credits. Be, we will not see that coming, but we will love it and embrace it forever. We know Ken Cosgrove uh, oh, can I mean, dance. I love that story in uh, in the John Hamm interview in GQ or wherever it was about how they they did the table read for the final episode, and everyone was like, "That's it," and then they left, and hmm. then Matthew Weiner brought all of the all of the main players into his office and showed them the real ending <laughs> show. <laughs> I thought that was. Uh, a nice bit of show. Impressively paranoid. Yeah. yeah, that as well. So Mad Men, uh, great show. More well, movies. I, I feel certain <laughs> we'll talk about it more in the coming weeks. No, it's, this is probably it. Yeah, yeah. Thrones is coming Done. back. Yeah. Uh. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday talking about Ex Machina. Because none of us saw The Longest Ride, even though I actually... David will probably mention Clouds of... Sils Maria. Sils Maria, yeah. All right, well, if any of us see The Longest Ride between now and then, I don't... I, yeah, I uh, had only they invited me. I would have loved to see a Nicholas Sparks adaptation about rodeo and World War II, starring and, the Clint Eastwood's son and Charlie Chaplin's granddaughter. But alas, what? I was not invited. And also Alan Alda. <laughs> and also... Wow. <laughs> and introducing Alan Alda. Uh, introducing. <laughs> so we'll be back with Not That, but with Ex Machina and Claude Sills Maria. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches. I'm the senior writer for Esquire.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And we have a website, fightinginthewarroom.com, where you can leave comments uh, similar to the ones we read earlier in this episode, uh, or you can share episodes and accost us on Twitter or praise us. Anything is possible through the power of our website website fightingintheworm.com I'm David Ehrlich I'm the associate film editor of Time Out New York and the editor at large of Little White Lies magazine you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich at Time Out US Film uh, you can find all of us together on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room where you can leave us nasty messages which I assume uh, or I assure you not nasty thoughtful but uh, so, or you can also leave us polite messages which we will also read 
I'm Dave Gonzalez. It's about first part DA70. That's also my Twitter handle. I write at geek.com, forbes.com, and latino-review.com. I also do a series of spin-off podcasts. I'm not part of the excellent review episodes, and therefore did not get to weigh in on Furious 7, which I'm sure is amazing. But I gotta go see it in the Cineplex and everybody else. I do these podcasts called The Thought Bubble and Storm of Spoilers. One is about comic books, one is about Game of Thrones. Uh, they're gonna be handing off, but you can find them at fightinginthewarroom.com at, uh, Patch has already told you about, and uh, you should because they're great and they make you smarter. Yeah, and I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at vanityfair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K A T E Y R I C H. That's also a place where you can find all of us at F I T W R, where we're talking about various things, arguing about John Oliver, and uh, talking about this week's lightning round question, which was In honor of Clouds of Sils Maria, which actor whose native language is not English knocked you out with an English? language performance nicely enunciated dave it's almost like english is your first language uh thank you for listening and we'll be back talking to you on friday (laughs) okay (laughs) i I realized it might have sounded racist halfway through that sentence that's like that was like the sean penn giving the oscar to alejandro who's letting these fucking mexicans in the country comment at the end of the episode (laughs) just throw it in there and hopefully nobody notices (laughs) 